This morning we're going to be reading in Daniel chapter 11, and because it is such a long chapter, and because I still want to read the whole chapter, uh, there is a reason why I want to read the whole chapter. It just gives you a sense or a feel for what's going on as opposed to just referring to the odd verse here or there. Uh, we split the reading up into three parts, and so um, uh, we're going to have the first reading. I'll, I'll preach uh, the first portion of the service, then the second reading, the next portion, and the final reading in the final portion of the service. So uh, if you have your Bibles, open, turn them to Daniel chapter 11. And Pastor Barry is going to begin by reading uh, from the middle of verse 2 all the way to verse 20. Daniel chapter 11, verse 2. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Then the king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, from her roots, one shall rise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again rise, raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies." In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of woman to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he who 
shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back towards the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to gather around your word now this morning. It's a word that um, was of great encouragement to Daniel, and I believe it's a word of great encouragement to us today. I pray that uh, you'll help us to grasp what it is in the big way that you are wanting to communicate to us. Um, help us make sense of this, I pray. Open our hearts, our minds, and our wills. In Jesus' name, amen. In only a few days, uh, Donald Trump will be sworn in as the 45th president of the United States of America. Eight years of uh, President Obama will come to an end, and it will fade into the history books. And this much is clear, I think, um, at least in my mind, that uh, President Obama is clearly frustrated that his agenda of hope and his dream for America is in jeopardy. And Donald Trump will certainly try to change the landscape of the United States of America. These kinds of things are nothing new, though, and this scenario is not just a reflection of American politics. Rather, it's the reality of the lives that we live in the world that we live in. Leaders come and leaders go. Leaders plan and leaders dream and set into motion, only to be voted out, kicked out, pushed out, otherwise sent out into pasture, apparently without any rhyme or reason. And in some situations, people are very glad that a certain regime was stopped, halted, altered, or destroyed. But in other situations, we look and we say, really? Weren't we just about to solve this world problem or, uh, or create a solution to this difficulty that we have faced for so long in a country? And sometimes you look at the comings and the goings of people in leadership and of world leaders, and you reflect um, on the words of the writer to Ecclesiastes who said it's all meaningless. We take two steps forward and we go three steps backwards. Can Daniel help us as we live in this world in which we find ourselves? Well, I think he does. Daniel, if you were here last week, gave us a little bit of insight into the reality of the world in which we live. And this morning, he gives us insight into the God behind history. Remember that Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12 are all part of a single final vision that Daniel receives from God. And Daniel was helped in the first part in chapter 10 to understand the reality of the moral and spiritual battle that is behind history. And he realized that it's not just a human reality, but there's a spiritual reality behind everything that is going on. And to prepare him for that vision, God helped him to see that reality in which he lived and in which we live. God has, or Daniel was in the third year of Cyrus, which is about 356 AD. The people of God are in really tough as they are experiencing all kinds of difficulties back in Jerusalem. And as I said, Daniel had committed himself to pray for God's people and for a further understanding of what God was up to. And so as we come then to chan chapter 11, I was going to say channel 11. As we come to chapter 11, 
we have God's answer to Daniel's prayer in the form of this vision. And as you listen to this vision, uh, apart from the fact that it might have been confusing to you, the description that is given here in this vision is staggering in its detail. It covers people and events over hundreds of years before they ever happened. And it describes those events with incredible accuracy down to individual people and times. And we will not take time this morning to go through what historians, both Christian and secular, have demonstrated is, is, is accurate to a point that's almost mind-boggling. And so Daniel received a vision in the 6th century about what would happen over the next 350 years. Some people question if that's even possible, but I say, well, why should it be impossible for the people of God to possess knowledge of the future? Isn't this a position that is consistent throughout the book of Daniel, that God again and again reveals to Daniel the end from the beginning? He tells Daniel what is to come. He interprets to Daniel visions and what those visions mean for the days ahead. And isn't this a position, after all, that is consistent throughout all of Scripture, that God is the God of the future and of the past and of the present? In fact, Isaiah says, this is what the Lord, the King of Israel and its Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, says. I am the first and I am the last. There is no God but me. Who, like me, can announce the future? Let him say so and make a case before me, since I have established an ancient people. Let these gods declare the coming things and what will take place. In other words, God is distinguishing himself from all the other so-called gods of this world by saying, I know the future, and I can tell you the future because I control the future. And so what is at stake as we come in part to this particular chapter is does God so rule the history of the world and communicate it with us that his future purposes may be disclosed before the events actually happen? My view is yes. And my view is that the book of Daniel presents these three chapters as a prophetic outline of the future events from the perspective of a 6th century author. This chapter is a pointer to God's sovereign control over history. And it is profoundly relevant for our journey of faith today and our encouragement as the people of God. The breadth of this vision is expansive. Like chapter 8, it actually begins in the 6th century and it extends actually to, I believe, the time when Jesus comes back again. I've divided it into three sections. First of all, it is simply this. History is nuts. Wars and rumors of wars. I think that's true of, of what is presented here in this first part of chapter 11, and it's true of how we look at the world around us. It is really nuts sometimes. And it is simply full of wars and rumors of wars and has been that way ever since the beginning of time. The kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world are portrayed here in a permanent state of conflict, which from time to time breaks out in open rebellion and conflict. These verses cover then a lot of ground. In 19 verses, from chapter, or verse 2 to verse 20, we cover about 355 years. We move from 530 B.C. to 175 B.C. You look at verse 2, and that's the Persian Empire. And the fourth king mentioned here is most 
certainly Xerxes I, which is the same king who was the husband of Esther, which we have the book of Esther in the Bible. Verse 3 is a reference to Alexander the Great. A phenomenal young man. I'm currently reading a book about Alexander the Great. And the spot I'm in right now is where he and Darius finally have it out. And he beats, or, or sorry, Xerxes, and he beats Xerxes. He's an incredible um, uh, uh, leader in military uh, events. His exploits are amazing. The expanse of his kingdom was considerable. His invincibility for a time is almost legendary. But Alexander the Great died in 323 B.C. You come to verse 4 of chapter 11, and we move into the breakup of Alexander's empire as it was distributed amongst four of his generals. And then we come to verses 5 to 20, and we find detailed descriptions of the various um, interactions of two of those generals and their kingdoms specifically. The kingdom of the south, which was ruled by the Ptolemies, who were based in Egypt, and the kingdom of the north, which is the Seleucids, who is based in Syria and Babylonia. And in these verses, we have these conflicts between these two kingdoms that are described and that hold our focus for those few verses. In that section alone, we cover seven Seleucid kings over a period of about 150 years. And as I said, the precision of the predictions in these verses is incredible. And there is little disagreement on the historical accuracy of the vision that Daniel is given. I will just encourage you on your own, if you're a historical buff, to go and read and you will find it amazing what God revealed to Daniel through the angel. What is unmistakable, and I wanted it all read so you got this, was the chaos and the intrigue and the instability of these two kingdoms. It is one conflict, one war, one political intrigue, one murder after another. There are marriage alliances, there are betrayals, there are lies, there are schemes, there are conspiracies, there are tragedies. Governments would come and go, and yet in the end, nothing would be accomplished. We are meant, loved ones, to understand this to be a description of the history of the world. It doesn't matter the time or the country, the leader, the history of mankind is the same. It is chaotic and it's inconclusive. It rarely accomplishes much. Evil will always be unstable. And after all the rumors and wars that we have recorded for us here in this short period of history, nothing is anything different. Everything simply remains the same. And the balance of power shifts continually. And so we ask ourselves, are we any further ahead? We can ask that of a politics in B.C. or politics in Alberta or politics in Canada or politics in Europe. After all the comings and goings, are we any further ahead? And it's in all of this that the people of God find themselves. And so what's the takeaway from this first couple sections. Well, I think it's along these lines, that nothing ought to shock us when we turn on our television and watch the news or we read the newspapers. The difficulties that the Jews found themselves in, in in 500 BC or 300 BC or 164 BC, are simply part and parcel of living in this world. And the trials and the tribulations that you and I face are, are an ongoing feature of being part of this world that is led by these people that are in opposition to God. 
and the troubles may touch us. In fact, as Daniel records in this vision, some of the Jews were caught up in the conflict. And they were, they were being asked to take one side or the other, as he says in verse 14. Some are indirectly afflicted as, they are, as, as these changes sweep through our lives, leaving a trail of destruction in their wake. But again, the troubles and the difficulties that we face as God's people shouldn't frighten us. Because God is in control. That is one of the big themes of these verses is God is in control. How do we know that? Because God told us all this would happen before any of it happened. Some of you might say, really? It sure doesn't look as though God is in control. I want you to consider a little word that dominates the verbal landscape of these verses and one idea that dominates these verses. One little word. It's a little word that points us to the work of God in history. I don't know if you picked it up. I've circled it everywhere it appears in Daniel chapter 11 for me. It's this little word, but. And it comes again and again and again and again and again in this text. It's a contrast. It's a conclusion. It's an unexpected turn. It's a time limitation. In other words, it is nothing less than the hand of God. That little word, but, it repoints us to the hand of God. It highlights for us the way that God frustrates the plans of the rulers of this world. The way that God brings to an end their designs. The, God, the way God brings to an end and frustrates their purposes. In other words, the structure of this vision makes it clear that in wave after wave of worldly strutting and activity, in the end of, in the, end of the day, in the final analysis, it's God that's in control and it's God's kingdom that will ultimately prevail. You see, the world plots, but God thwarts. The world plans, but God intervenes. And it is such an encouraging word. And if God didn't intervene, think in your head, what would happen if some of these individuals were allowed to carry out to the full extent the plans and intentions they have? This world would be a horrid place in which to live. So one word. And I, for one, am so thankful for the encouragement that this word gives about God's intervention, signaled by this little word, but. And then there's one idea that we find woven through this text. Time. An appointed time. Time of the end. All of these troubles are purposeful and are time-bound. They serve God's purposes and they have a determined end. Someone is in control and this is God. A time limit has been imposed and this is God. Always keep in mind that it's God's timetable that rules history, not man or woman's timetable. And we find this woven again through Daniel chapter 11. God's timetable is the only timetable that matters. We need to be assured, loved ones, that the kingdoms of, these, of this world can neither destroy God's work or establish it. They are merely tools in the hand of a sovereign God who does declare the end from the beginning because he is ultimately the only one that controls the affairs of this world. And so we are not to look at the news through the eyes of, of, of the secular media. Rather, we are to look 
to at the news through the spectacles of scriptural revelation. For when we do, we know that, and this is Isaiah, that it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a current and, a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of this earth as emptiness. That's the first point that is being made by Daniel in this vision. Verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army. But he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the appointed time. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For the ships of Kitten shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering. And they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame by captivity and plunder. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined, purified, and made white, until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. The second point from these verses is History is intense. History is intense. And what we have here is a little Antichrist, Antiochus IV. You get a sense of the, from the first verses that history is nuts. It's coming and going. It's up and down. It's back and forth. It's new. It's old. Then we drive in and zero in on a particular person here, a particularly evil person. 
I think we can run through our minds over the history of this world, those of us who have been around for a little while, names of people that, um, that just now become, um, they stand out for their evil. Idi Amin, Pol Pot, Hitler, Stalin, Nero, numerous other uh, individuals who have been despotic throughout history. And these are intense bursts of brutal intensity. And in these verses, we zoom in on one particular period in time that God, through the angel, told Daniel was about to come. It's a much shorter period of time, and it's an intense period of time, but it's one that reflects countless others throughout our history. The pace now slows in this sense. In 15 verses now, the vision covers only 12 years. From, verses one, or from, from 175 to 163 B.C. And the focus narrows to one particular king, Antiochus IV. We've already met him in chapter 8. And verse 21 says he is a vile man. And that he would bring great suffering on God's people. You might have heard that as Pastor Barry read. Now all of a sudden the people of God and their um, response and interaction with this individual is highlighted. Daniel is given details about his reign. In particular, his military successes and the rewards that he gives out. He's given details about the objects of his hostility, the king of the south and the covenant people of God. And we're given a glimpse into the cost of his savagery. And verse 30 warms of an anonymous, uh, 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 sorry, an anonymous storm that's just on the horizon where this king will eventually vent his anger on the people of the Holy Covenant. And he will be ticked off because he wanted to go into battle against Egypt again, but he was confronted by the Roman army. They gave him an ultimatum, and in his fury, he came back to Jerusalem and just undertook an assault on the people of Jerusalem and the people of God in particular that is absolutely brutal. Why does Antiochus get so much space devoted to him? Why should we, as followers of Jesus Christ today, concern ourselves with thinking about him in Daniel chapter 11? Well, as one person says, this is why. Antiochus instituted a religious rampage against the covenant people. He was set on emasculating the vitals of biblical faith and was determined to see every Jew apostatize. He stripped them of sacrament, the death penalty for circumcising male infants, of sacrifice unless they would offer pagans offerings to Zeus, and of scripture, one's life would be forfeit if they were caught with a Torah scroll. In this reign of terror, it seemed the only choice was to be a live pagan or a dead Israelite. Hence, many in Israel caved in. But the severity of the trouble explains the amount of space given to Antiochus. This was to be a terribly lethal time of tribulation for Israel. God's people needed to know clearly about it in advance. Hence, in 15 verses of this prophecy, dealing with the would-be ruler, Antiochus Epiphanes. In other words, God was being merciful to his people. He was helping them understand what would come, but he was also helping them understand that it was only a period of time at which it would come to a conclusion. And loved ones, isn't this what we find throughout the rest of Scripture? 
I hope you understand that this is the truth behind Matthew 24 and 25. As Jesus, in his just mercy and grace to his disciples in answering their question, tells them what the last days will be like, what they can expect, what they can look for, what certain things will mean, what will happen. You go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2, and you find there more revelation from God about what it will be like in these last days as we live in this world and face other little a antichrist you go to first or second peter chapter three or the book of revelation and once again you see the mercy and grace of god revealed to us not so that we can pinpoint times and events but rather we can understand the general reality of the times in which we live and what god is up to and be assured that god is in control you see antiochus here in daniel chapter 11 is a prototype He's a prototype of many who will come after him. And for this reason, God gives us a glimpse into his methods and into his progress. And I want you, hopefully if you have time, to go back and think about Antiochus. What is it that he tries to do? How does he try and undermine the people of God? What pressures does he put on them? Because the methods and the programs of big A Antichrist will be these perfected. Just a few moments earlier, I indicated that all that matters is God's timetable. As verse 35 reminds us, Antiochus will only operate within an appointed time until the time of the end, the appointed time. Loved ones, God is in control. Verse 36. And the king shall do as he wills, he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by woman. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land. And tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the main parts of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. 
As we come then to this final portion of Scripture, not only is history nuts, and not only is history intense, but history is written. And Daniel tells us here that one greater than Antiochus is coming, the Antichrist. See, these verses present a challenge for those who believe that chapter 11 is pseudo-prophecy. Until verse 35, the precision of the details is absolutely uncanny and unmistakable. But all of a sudden, you come to these last verses and things go a little bit sideways. Do these things refer to Antiochus IV? If so, then the author is now using his imagination. There are too many things in these verses that don't fit into Antiochus' life. So either all of a sudden the writer, writer gets it wrong, or now he's trying his hand at real predictive prophecy, and he really messes up. As we come to these verses, though, just coming out of the intense period of Antiochus, we might say, well, bad as things are to this point, there is worse yet to come. You see, the question that immediately comes to us is, who is this king in verse 36 that does as he pleases? These verses describe this king's religious pretensions, his military dominance, and his final end. And these events do not fit into anything that we know of the life of Antiochus. And when you continue these words into the vision of chapter 12, verses 1 to 3, we are taken then to the final end, which is the resurrection of the righteous and of the wicked. And so it seems to me that we are moved to the end when Christ returns, the final reckon, uh, resurrection. It makes most sense that these verses now describe the Antichrist who will be on this earth just before Christ comes in all his glory. Verses 12, 1 to 3 says, At that time Michael shall arise, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name was found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust shall, of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Doesn't that sound familiar? Doesn't that sound very much like what we have written by John in Revelation chapter 20? Where there again the books are open, the judgment is rendered, a resurrection has taken place, eternal punishment and eternal life are sealed. Doesn't it sound very much like the end of Matthew chapter 25, the sheep and the goat judgment, where these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life? It takes us back to Daniel 8, where we saw the first parallel between small a antichrist and large a antichrist. And there are significant perils, par, par, parallels between Antiochus described in verses 21 to 35 and this new king now described in 1136 to 12.3. Well, I won't go into the details other to say this. Their rise and successes are detailed. Their conflict and oppressions are outlined, and suffering and steadfastness of God's people is shown. And so this vision then takes us from Antiochus IV to the final opponent of God's kingdom and God's people. In between, I hope we understand that there are many small a antichrists, as John tells us in 1 John chapter 2.18. But we get a glimpse of what this 
final antichrist will look like, this final opposure to God's people and God's kingdom. In verse 36, he will be a brutal man. He will do whatever he pleases. He will, he will be autonomous and he will be blasphemous. In verses 36 and 37, his focus will be on himself. And he will exalt himself and he will magnify himself and he will lift himself and his name up above everyone and everything else and above every God that man has so-called produced. Verse 38 tells us that his religion will be one of war. What a contrast to the kingdom of peace that Christ will bring when he comes. But he will honor the God of fortresses. He will be a man of war. His policy will be might will make right. All his efforts will go into the so-called war machine. He will be brutal and he will be a killing machine. In verse 39 it says he will seduce people into alliances. Verses 40 to 43 tell us he will dominate for a time. Verses 44 to 45 tell us he will be terminated. With a mere phrase, somebody said nine Hebrew words, he simply moves off the scene of history. That's why I love First Th- or Second Thessalonians 2 where we find that Jesus will come back and slay this man of lawlessness with a breath of his mouth. Done. Finished. He will leave the stage of history in insignificant. Fascinating treatment for a deity clone who conquers nations and oppresses presses saints. He is wiped off the stage of history in a mere six words. No matter how godless a ruler of the nations might be, he will come to his end and no one will help him. Mark well verse 45, loved ones. Keep that in mind. This is what every Christ follower needs to keep in mind. That at some point with every single evil ruler that oppresses the people of God, their end will come. And they will be wiped out. So what does this all mean for us today then? The general trajectory of these verses seems to describe for us a world that will get more and more difficult, particularly for the people of God. And we see this all around us. And so what hints do we get from these verses then practically that might help us? Three, very quickly. Know your God. That's what Daniel 11.32 says. Those who know their God. Theology matters. Understanding this God who made the heavens and the earth, who rules this earth, who is in relationship with you and I, and all who put their trust in him through Jesus Christ matters. Know your God. Fill your mind with truth about his sovereign power. Be confident in his activity in history. Trust him for his faithfulness and his his promise to work out and accomplish his purposes in this world, and at the same time, even in your own life. If you know your God, you will endure. That's what Daniel tells us here. So learn about God. Develop your relationship with God. The opening chapter of one of the best books, I think, that J.I. Packer ever wrote was called Knowing God. And he makes this point brilliantly. He notes that in the context, the statement in verse 11 is introduced by another but. And set in contrast to the activity of this vile person who sets up the abomination that makes desolate and corrupts by smooth and flattering talk those whose loyalty to God's covenant has failed. And there is this word but again. And he says, this shows us 
that the action taken by those who know God is their reaction to the anti-God trends which they see operating all around them. While their God is being defied and disregarded, they cannot rest. They feel they must do something. The dishonor done to God's name goads them into action. If you have time, read this chapter in Packer's book, Knowing God. He says, then those who know God have great thoughts about God. Those who know God have great boldness for God. And those who know God have great contentment in God. We survive by knowing our God. The second thing Daniel says is, they stand firm and take action. You might have noticed in here that we see a lot of wavering of the people of God. Some who are committed are seduced, so to speak, to the dark side. Daniel says here, those who know their God will stand firm and take action. Resistance is not futile. In fact, we are called to resist even unto death. Just read the books of uh, the chapters of Daniel, uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and you're aware of the fact that the people of God are planted right in the midst of this evil world, and yet God is able to sustain them, strengthen them, preserve them, and bring them into their eternal kingdom as they stand firm and resist. I understand, and we are to understand, the pressure that is put upon us is relentless. And sometimes you might feel like plaster scene that's stuck into one of those little molds that our kids have and you squeeze it and out comes this sort of thing that is supposed to develop when you squeeze it through the mold. And we feel that pressure all around us. Stand and take action. Those in the resistance movement, he says here, are characterized as being wise. They know their God and they turn many to righteousness and they have understanding. Those who stand firm, as we clearly see here, will not always be delivered physically through unusual interventions of God as we saw in the book of Daniel, but they will be preserved eternally. And the final point after is knowing your God and standing firm and taking action is pray. Pray. This conflict is intense, and prayer is the primary means that Daniel shows us how we engage in this battle. Prayer is the theme of our resistance movement. The whole purpose of chapter 11 was to encourage Daniel's continual faithfulness in prayer as he'd already been praying. It's to continue and more in prayer. In Daniel chapter 10, he understood that he had a part to play in the real conflicts of this world. And the Lord was teaching Daniel that the real weapon of the church in the times in which we live is always prayer. Those who know their God are before anything else those who pray. And the first point where their zeal and energy for God's glory comes to expression is in their prayers. What did Daniel do in chapter 2 when they couldn't do anything else? They prayed. What did Daniel do in chapter 6 when he was confronted with death? He prayed. What does Daniel do in chapter 10 when he doesn't know what to do or doesn't know what to understand? He prays. Packer notes that the invariable fruit of true knowledge of God is energy to pray for God's cause. Energy indeed which can only find an outlet and a relief of inner tension when channeled into such prayer. And the more knowledge, the more prayer. You know, you and I, I won't speak for you, but I will likely never have access to people in power or people in position or people with authority. I will likely grow old one day and not be able to do a whole lot, but pray. But that is a lot that we can do. 
If, however, there is in us little energy for prayer and little consequent practice of it, this is a sure sign, Packer says, that we scarcely know God. And so as we're confronted with these times we live in, practical points are simply know your God, stand firm and take action, and pray. And just as the saying is true that all good things must come to the end, so the opposite is also true. All bad things must come to an end. And all human resistance against the kingdom of God will end. Every human life, for that matter, will sooner or later come to an end. But those who have put their faith and trust in God through Jesus Christ will stand now and forevermore. May God help us to know him and trust Christ. Father, we thank you for our time in your word this morning. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.